Hello, my name is Stanley Bill. You're listening to Notes from Poland. This week, I continue my brief history of Poland with part three on the multi-ethnic dynasty of the Jagiellonians. I'll look at the beginnings of the Polish-Lithuanian Union, the addition of Royal Prussia and the Baltic port of Danzig, and the growing freedoms of the Szlachta. Notesfrompoland.com is the leading English language source of news, insight, and analysis on Poland. In this podcast, I look at the country from all angles, politics, history, culture, and society. You can get more news and the deeper stories about Poland at notesfrompoland.com. King Kazimierz the Great, according to the Chronicles, found Poland untidy of wood and clay when he came to the throne in 1333, but left it magnificent of stone and brick. However, what he did not leave behind him was a legitimate heir. His death in 1370 brought the Piast dynasty to its end and threw the Polish kingdom into a period of uncertainty. But it also led, indirectly, to an extraordinary new opportunity that would change the course of Polish and indeed Central and Eastern European history, the formation of a union between Poland and Lithuania. For over four centuries, this union, in different forms, would forge one of the largest realms in Europe, encompassing multiple peoples, languages and confessions, stretching at its height from the Baltic to the Black Sea. From being a relatively small and homogeneous kingdom of ethnically similar West Slavic tribes, though with heavily German cities and a growing Jewish population, Poland's political interests and cultural connections diversified significantly and expanded into the East. Poland became an Eastern power, whose main rival would no longer be the Germanic Teutonic Knights, but the rising challenge of Moscow. In this episode, I'll look at the beginnings and development of the Polish-Lithuanian Union under the multicultural dynasty of the Jagiellonians. When Kazimierz the Great died in 1370 without an heir, his nephew, Louis I of Hungary, became King of Poland, effectively establishing a brief personal union of these two realms. His reign, which lasted until his death in 1382, was crucial in the continued development of the power of the nobility, the Schlachter. First of all, his ascension to the throne, although it had originally been Kazimierz's idea, specifically required the consent of the nobles and a number of concessions to them. Four years after his coronation, Louis, who like Kazimierz had no sons, entered into negotiations with the Polish nobles to guarantee the right of one of his daughters to succeed him. In return, he granted a series of further concessions known as the privilege of Kosice, named for a town in today's Slovakia. Most importantly, the privilege established a fundamental principle that the crown had to obtain the approval of the nobles in order to impose any new taxes. 
In practice, this fostered the development of what would later become the Parliament, the Seim, which assembled representatives of local councils of nobles, the Seimiki, without whose support the king could not effectively rule. This would mark the beginning of a uniquely Polish version of no taxation without representation, and ultimately the development of what would come to be described as a form of noble democracy. A very specific political culture based on consent was forming in the Kingdom of Poland. When Louis I died in 1382, the ensuing debates over the succession consolidated the independent power of the Polish nobles to decide who would rule over them. They did not wish to accept Louis's oldest daughter, with her husband Sigismund of Luxembourg as regent. In 1382 and 83, the nobles met in a series of assemblies that ended in their selection of Louis's youngest daughter, Jadwiga, Hedwig in Hungarian, who was only 10 years old as the King of Poland. She was crowned in 1384. The nobles rejected her father's preferred choice of husband and instead looked in a very different direction for their future ruler to the pagan Grand Duke of Lithuania, Yogaila. Medieval Lithuania was an extraordinary entity. At its height, it extended from the ancestral homeland of the pagan Lithuanians in a northern Baltic landscape of thick forests and lakes, all the way across today's Belarus and Ukraine, over grassy steppes to the borders of the Crimean Khanate of the Tatars on the Black Sea. The name Lithuania to describe this vast region is misleading if we approach it in modern terms. The Lithuanians themselves were a Baltic people related to the neighbouring pagan Prussians who had been destroyed by the Teutonic Order, and their territorial heartland partially overlaps with modern-day Lithuania. But the whole Grand Duchy of Lithuania, with which Poland would form its union, was a complex hybridized composite state whose people and rulers were a mixture of ethnic Lithuanians and East Slavic Ruthenians, that is, the ancestors of today's Ukrainians, Belarusians and Russians. The Ruthenians were Eastern Orthodox Christians who had previously had their own powerful confederation of principalities centred on the great medieval city of Kiev a realm usually known as Kievan Rus. In this sense, when we talk about the union of Poland and Lithuania, we should think of it as a union not of two, but rather of at least three distinct peoples and cultures, Poles, Lithuanians and Ruthenians. In the late 13th and 14th centuries, the pagan Lithuanian princes of the northern forests had come to control the vast East Slavic territory of today's Belarus and Ukraine by filling a power vacuum caused by the devastating Mongol invasions of the Ruthenian lands in the 13th century. Between 1237 and 1242, the Mongol cavalry of Batu Khan, a successor to Genghis Khan, had attacked, destroyed and subjugated the principalities of Kievan Rus whose earlier fragmentation had weakened its power. The city of Kiev, to which modern-day Ukrainians, Belarusians and Russians all trace their symbolic beginnings, was sacked in 1240, 
with the majority of its large population of around 50,000 inhabitants killed. The Mongols then swept into the Polish lands, also fragmented at that time, where they seized and destroyed several major cities, including Lublin and Kraków. Only the news of the death of the Great Khan saved the Polish principalities from longer-term occupation, as the Mongol forces withdrew to their Central Asian homeland for the election of his successor. The Mongols would continue to occupy some of the lands of today's Russia, under a loose tribute system often known as the Mongol yoke. However, their control of the western lands of today's Belarus and Ukraine was much less secure, allowing the ambitious Lithuanians to take control of the whole devastated region through a series of conquests and negotiations. The Lithuanians' own northern heartland had been shielded from the Mongol invasions by its topographic combination of forest and swamp, where the Mongol cavalry was ineffective. As they steadily accumulated the lands around Minsk, Kiev and the Ukrainian steppe country, and even Smolensk to the east, the Lithuanians showed a flexible and often even consensual approach to the rule of their new territories. As a pagan people, they showed no interest in imposing their faith on the East Slavic Orthodox Christians of the Ruthenian lands. Instead, they themselves adopted many features of a culture that was, in some respects, more developed than their own. Lithuanian princes and princesses married into the old princely families of Kievan Rus, sometimes converting to Eastern Orthodox Christianity when they did so. Before long, mixed Lithuanian-Ruthenian families ruled the eastern regions, which were all under the ultimate control of the pagan Grand Duke in Lithuania proper, but which had considerable autonomy to regulate themselves in accordance with their former traditions. As Baltic Lithuanian was not a written language at this time, the Grand Duchy also took on the East Slavic language and legal codes of Kievan Rus for its own legal regulation. Grand Duke Yogaila, born in either 1352 or 1362, was a good example of this cultural hybridity. As the supreme ruler of the enormous composite Lithuanian state, he himself was a proud pagan, the son of Algirdas, a fire worshipper who had overseen much of the expansion of the realm and who had been cremated on a ceremonial pyre with his horses and most valuable possessions. But Yogaila's mother was Ulyana of Tver, near Moscow, a Ruthenian princess who remained a devout Eastern Orthodox Christian at the court of her pagan husband. Some of Algirdas's earlier children had been baptized into Eastern Orthodoxy, though Yogaila himself seems to have remained in the pagan faith. He was bilingual, speaking both his father's Baltic Lithuanian and his mother's Slavic Ruthenian tongue. In 1385, this pagan Lithuanian Grand Duke signed a prenuptial agreement with the Polish nobles to marry the now 11-year-old Catholic Hungarian princess Jadwiga in Kraków, and thus to become King of Poland. In this agreement, known as the Union of Krewo, Jogaila promised that he and all his pagan subjects would convert to Roman Catholic Christianity, that he would free Polish prisoners of war held in Lithuania, 
and that he would attach his Lithuanian and Ruthenian lands to the kingdom of Poland, forming a union. Whatever the appeal of these benefits, the Polish choice of Jogaila was a surprising turn of events. The Poles and Lithuanians had often clashed, especially over the territories of Red Ruthenia, around today's Polish-Ukrainian border, which Kazimierz the Great had incorporated into the Polish kingdom. Both sides were probably motivated by the threat of the Teutonic Order, which was particularly dangerous to the pagan Lithuanians pressing to take their lands in a crusade to convert them, just as the knights had subjugated the pagan Prussians before them. From this point of view, Jogaila's conversion to Christianity followed the same strategy as Mieszko's earlier baptism of the Polanians in 966, a preemptive conversion to stave off the threat of conquest on a religious pretext. With this move, one of the last pagan peoples in Europe would succumb to the power of Christianity, completing a process of internal European cultural colonization. The Lithuanians were also under growing pressure from the east, from the rising power of the Grand Duchy of Moscow. The marriage took place in 1386, and Jogaila was baptized and crowned as Władysław Jagiełło, King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania, uniting the two realms under his rule. As in Poland under Mieszko, the conversion to Christianity meant the chopping down of trees and sacred groves, the destruction of temples, and the extinguishing of holy flames. Churches were built on the ruins of the pagan sacred places. Just as Czech and German clergymen had spread Christianity in Poland, shaping its religious and political vocabulary, Polish priests influenced the early development of Christianity in Lithuania. This process was accompanied by the beginnings of a polonization of Lithuanian elites, a source of bitterness in modern Lithuanian interpretations of this period. The precise nature of the union has also caused much disagreement, both among later historians and in the sources of the time. Some interpreted it as a purely personal union, with the two realms united only under the power of the king. Others argued that Lithuania had essentially been incorporated into the Polish kingdom. This seems to have been the view of some of the Polish Schlachta in the 15th century, sparking a strong defence of their autonomy from the Lithuanian nobles. Uncertainty over the specific conditions of the union would persist for centuries requiring constant negotiation and redefinition, until a final agreement at Lublin in 1569 created a real union and a single, though composite, state. According to some modern Lithuanian interpreters, this long process fundamentally involved a catastrophic loss of identity and independence, as the Lithuanian elites, mostly voluntarily, though under the pressure of certain historical imperatives, gave up their religion, their language, and their separate state. From Yogaila's point of view, in the 1380s, Christianization had perhaps seemed inevitable, with part of the Lithuanian elite already Ruthenizing and converting to Orthodox Christianity, on the one hand, and the Catholic warriors of the Teutonic Knights 
intent on forcing them to accept their German god on the other. A voluntary baptism through free union with Poland no doubt seemed preferable to conversion at the point of a sword. By marrying Jadwiga and taking the name of Władysław Jagiełło, the new king founded the Polish-Lithuanian dynasty of the Jagiellonians. If one of the main purposes of the union was to counteract the threat of the Teutonic Knights, then its value very soon became apparent. In 1410, on fields near the village of Grunwald, in the rolling, lake-dotted landscape of what is now northeastern Poland, King Władysław Jagiełło led a mixed army of Poles, Lithuanians, Moldavians, Ruthenians from Smolensk and Tatars against the German knights of the Teutonic Order. The battle was large, intense and lengthy, lasting the whole day. In the end, Władysław's forces prevailed. The Grand Master of the Order was killed and many knights were massacred in a desperate last stand in an improvised fort of circled wagons. In spite of the scale of the battle, with thousands of casualties and prisoners taken from among the knights, the fruits of the victory were unimpressive. The Polish-Lithuanian forces unsuccessfully besieged the enormous brick castle at Marienburg, Malborg in Polish, which formed the capital of the state of the Teutonic Order. A year later, in 1411, the two parties signed a peace agreement at Torn, Torun in Polish, with the order only agreeing to give back slivers of the territory it had previously taken from the Polish kingdom. Nevertheless, the threat of the order would never be the same. Between 1414 and 1418, at the Council of Constance, a series of ecumenical meetings organised by competing church authorities, Polish-Lithuanian representatives made strong arguments against the crusading rites of the Teutonic Knights that had formed the justification for their expansionism. Though most of Lithuania's pagans had theoretically converted to Christianity with Yogaila, in practice there were many holdouts and certain regions still dominated by paganism. The knights claimed the right to conquer and convert them. The Polish-Lithuanian representation, led by Paweł Wodkowicz, a legal scholar from the University of Kraków, argued that the sovereignty and religious freedom of pagans should be respected and that it was not legitimate to attack them. Wodkowicz advocated the peaceful coexistence of peoples of different religious beliefs. Though these arguments had a partly strategic purpose, directed against the interests of their German rivals, they also reflected an emerging political culture of tolerance in Poland. Indeed, the ideas of Wodkowicz and Stanisław of Skarbimierz, another member of the Polish-Lithuanian delegation at Constance, would make a contribution to early ideas of just war and international law. The Poles also strongly defended the Czech radical Christian reformer Jan Hus, who would eventually be burnt at the stake for heresy. Stanisław of Skarbimierz was also the first rector of the University of Kraków, after its re-establishment in 1400 by King Władysław and Queen Jadwiga. The institution would later take the name of their dynasty when it became the Jagiellonian University. In a treatise on bad students, 
the university's rector gives a further insight into the nature of tolerance at this time. On the one hand, Stanislav criticizes students who fraternize with Jews, revealing an assumption of segregation that clearly diverges from modern ideas of tolerance. But he also reprimands those who persecute Jews, emphasizing that it is both morally unacceptable and illegal to do so. These arguments give a sense of the mixture of separation and acceptance that permeated the developing Polish ideas of toleration of religious difference. The nature of the rector's criticisms also sheds light on the actual behaviours of the students in Krakow, suggesting that some did indeed have friendly relations with their Jewish neighbours, while others attacked them. In the same treatise, the rector also despairs at students who waste their lecture time daydreaming about, and I quote, banquets, vain amusements, or the bed of a wretched lover. The Council of Constance did not reach decisive conclusions on the dispute between the Teutonic Knights and Poland-Lithuania. However, the era of the Order's power was coming to an end. In the 1440s, it was struck by internal strife. Especially after the Peace of Torn, the Knights had imposed increasingly burdensome taxes on their territory in arbitrary disregard of the law partly to fund further conflict with the Poles and Lithuanians. Eventually, disgruntled Prussian nobles and burghers of the major cities formed a loose alliance, generally known as the Prussian Confederation, to resist the order. In 1453, the tension culminated in a kind of civil war on the territory of the Teutonic state, as the rebels attacked the order's castles in the cities of Torn, Elbing, which is today's Elbląg in northern Poland, and Danzig, or Gdańsk. In Torn and Elbing, the furious burghers tore the castles apart, but the main stronghold of Marienburg still held out, and the Confederates knew they would need support. What followed was a very significant, but still little-known development in European history. The Prussians sought aid from the King of Poland, and Grand Duke of Lithuania, Kazimierz IV Jagiellonczyk, the youngest son of Władysław Jagiełło. In 1454, after intensive negotiations, the extensive Prussian lands and cities under the control of the Confederation were joined to the Polish Kingdom. The Polish-Lithuanian Union, with its large Ruthenian territories, was now expanded by a wealthy German region. Poland-Lithuania and the Prussian Confederates fought several wars to confirm this new territorial arrangement, but eventually the area of what would later be known as Royal Prussia became an integral, though autonomous, part of the Kingdom of Poland. The Prussians kept their own laws and a very considerable degree of independence. However, they also wanted access to the developing rights and freedoms of the Polish Schlachta, eventually including the right to participate in the evolving institution of royal elections. The Polish system, with its increasingly consensual basis, was attractive to the Prussian nobles. From the mid-15th century, the political community of Poland-Lithuania could thus be understood as a mixture of Poles, Lithuanians, Ruthenians, 
and Germans. Of course, this community was composed only of men belonging to the noble class, excluding women, Jews, most townsfolk, and the vast majority of the population, the Polish, Lithuanian, and Ruthenian peasantry. Crucially, the joining of Royal Prussia to the Polish Kingdom gave Poland-Lithuania access to the Baltic Sea through the port of Danzig, Gdańsk in Polish. For the next few centuries, Danzig would be by far the largest and wealthiest city in the realm, Poland-Lithuania's window on the world and the connecting point for the trade in raw materials, especially grain but also timber and metals, that would form the basis of the country's wealth. The grain was transported from large and small estates of the Schlachter and the Crown in the Polish and Ruthenian hinterlands up the Vistula and other rivers to be sold in Danzig. From there, it was shipped out to international markets in Germany, the Netherlands, England and beyond. In return, manufactured and luxury goods came into Poland-Lithuania from the West, establishing a trade imbalance that has led some economic historians to describe the relation as quasi-colonial. According to this interpretation, the vast territory of the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, especially the Ruthenian lands of today's Ukraine, became a source of raw materials for the fast-developing West, the breadbasket of Europe while the local economy remained largely undeveloped. Peasants worked under increasingly harsh conditions, while the minority of the ruling Schlachter spent the money extracted from their labour on luxuries imported from Western countries undergoing the early phase of the capitalist revolution. At the same time, most of the profits went to the foreign traders in Danzig and the Dutch shipping companies that transported the grain and other materials to more lucrative markets. From this point of view, even in the period of its greatest geographical extent and power, Poland-Lithuania remained an economic and perhaps cultural backwater, exporting raw materials and importing more sophisticated manufactured products, fashions and ideas. This interpretation runs the risk of falling into stereotypical visions of Western progress and Eastern backwardness, innovative centres and imitative peripheries. Such visions are far from innocent as they often come with value judgments that can serve and indeed have served to justify violent impositions of power. For instance, in the 20th century, the image of a backward Slavic East as a mere reservoir of raw material to be exploited lay at the very heart of the brutal colonial ambitions of Hitler's Germany in Poland and Ukraine. And yet, at least in the economic sphere, the peripherality or semi-peripherality of the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania is difficult to dispute, at least from the 16th century. This increasingly weak position in the evolving hierarchy of economic power would have both political and cultural consequences, even as the Polish-Lithuanian state continued to occupy an enormous swathe of territory on the map of Europe. On the maritime fringe of this territory was Danzig, a hub for exchange with the world 
the Polish kingdom's own international city. Its population and language remained overwhelmingly German, with significant minority communities of traders, or expats to use a contemporary term, from the Netherlands and even Scotland. Danzig governed itself and had its own currency. It should not be imagined as integrally Polish in any modern sense. Instead, the city was an important constituent part of a fundamentally composite state, with Polish, Lithuanian, Ruthenian and German elements. Throughout the 15th century and into the 16th, the multi-ethnic Schlachta continued to accrue the rights and privileges that would come to be known as the Golden Freedom. In 1413, shortly after their conversion, the newly Catholic Lithuanian nobles were granted the same rights as the Poles, and their families admitted to the Polish clan groupings. This voluntary process hastened the Polonization of Lithuanian elites. Initially, the Orthodox Ruthenian nobles were excluded from these rights, an important omission that was perhaps a harbinger of a developing conflict that would come to a head centuries later. In the 1430s, however, Orthodox nobles were finally granted most of the rights of Catholic Poles and Lithuanians, though certain public offices were still restricted to Catholics. The capacity of the Polish-Lithuanian Union to accommodate quite different cultural and religious groups was unique, but it had its limitations. Most significantly, the particular complexities of integrating Orthodox members of the polity would have consequences in the 17th century. It's telling that the Union was always described as a marriage of two nations, and not three. The place of the Ruthenians was unclear. After the initial rights won before the time of Władysław Jagiełło, the key breakthroughs for the Szlachta included a law introduced under his reign in the 1430s, guaranteeing that no nobleman could be arbitrarily imprisoned by the king, as well as successive statutes establishing a greater role for the Sejmiki, the regional councils of nobles, and eventually for the Sejm, or parliament. 1493 is usually defined as the date of the final institutionalization of the same, which was essentially a general assembly of envoys from all the regional Seimiki across the country. The power of this voting chamber was reinforced in 1505 by the passing of an act known as Nihil Novi, nothing new, enshrining the principle that no new laws could be passed without the consent of the whole political community, that is, the Schlachta. In Polish, this principle was captured in the phrase nic o nas bez nas, nothing about us without us. The Latin text of the document refers to both public liberties and the private interests of individuals, but crucially it defines the community as a republic a word derived from the Latin phrase res publica, literally meaning public thing, or thing of the people, with res meaning thing. The Polish word Rzeczpospolita is a direct translation of the Latin, Rzecz meaning thing, and pospolita the feminine form of an adjective meaning common or public. 
The name of today's Polish state, Rzeczpospolita Polska, literally the Polish Republic, harks back to this 16th century expression of early republicanism. Intentionally borrowing the language and legal traditions of the Roman Republic, and thus symbolically associating themselves with it, the nobles of the Polish-Lithuanian Union were asserting that the state belonged not to the king or ruling dynasty, but to all of them as a shared common good. The formation of the gentry republic, or noble democracy, as it has sometimes been known, was almost complete. Of course, these terms were misnomers, as the state remained a monarchy. Nevertheless, from the death of Kazimierz the Great, the nobles had on several occasions decided who the monarch would be. Throughout the Jagiellonian era, they retained an informal right to elect kings, though in practice they merely confirmed the dynastic succession. In 1573, this tradition was radicalized with the institution of the free election, an entirely open royal election in which the Schlachter chose their king, who would rule within the strict limits of the Schlachter's own rights and privileges. The period between the Nihil Novi Act of 1505 and the first royal election of 1573 is often known as the Golden Age of Poland-Lithuania. It coincides with the reign of the last two kings of the Jagiellonian dynasty, Zygmunt I and II. Together with the influences of Renaissance humanism and the Reformation, the blooming of Polish literary culture, and the final culmination of the unification process in the creation of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in 1569. This extraordinary period will be the subject of the next episode of A Brief History of Poland. I'm Stanley Bill. Thanks for listening. Thank you.